Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO Podcast. If you're a chief executive or if you think like one and you want to create exponentially greater impact, then this show is for you. My name is Richard Medcalf, founder of Xquadrant. I coach some of the most successful and impressive CEOs and executive teams on the planet and help them achieve even more extraordinary results. Because no matter how successful you've been in the past, there's always a whole new level of impact available to you. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. Jason, hi and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm going to jump straight in. You've just written a a really interesting book, Build for Tomorrow, and I want to know... How on earth could anybody, like who on earth starts their four-part methodology with panic? How can that be the first step <laughs> in any methodology? <laughs> uh, that's a really funny point. So the for, for those who don't know, the fourth step methodology, well, it's not methodology so much as the phases that we go through and then I give you methods to manage them, is panic, adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back. You know, it's funny, uh, when when I thought about this and, and kind of developed it, uh, I thought this is something similar. It's like, well, what do you do with panic? But then I realized that panic is the thing that is most recognizable and relatable. And uh, it's 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 nice to start with something where people immediately get to say, oh, I see myself in that. I am in the panic phase right now. Or I just got through the panic phase and I'm not exactly sure what to do next. So I found that starting it in a way in which it's, you know, as as a guy who comes from media, I think a lot about on-ramps is a constant thing that I'm thinking about whenever we're making a magazine, whenever I'm writing an article, what is the on-ramp for people? How do people get Mm -hmm. into this? Is this, is there an accessible enough entry point for people? And, uh, and I think panic actually functions as that. Yeah. So I don't know whether you, you, you know, this uh, being someone from over the, over the pond, obviously. um, But in Britain, there's a really famous TV program called dad's army, uh, which was was a wartime comedy of all the kind of the old, people who would be left behind who had to form the home guard. They're all mm. retired people. A very famous thing. And, you know, one of the corporals um, is always running around shouting, don't panic, don't panic. But of course, panic, working himself up into a blind panic <laughs> at the time. So, um, so Jason, I know I kind of jumped through at the deep end there. So we perhaps want to rewind a bit, but I think it's really interesting because like, okay, so we're talking, so let's find out what the, this book's about, what, what your work's about at the moment. So phase one, or like the, this first part of, of the process is around, okay, we're panicking. So why don't you, let's kind of zoom back out. What are we panicking about, right? Right. What's the problem that you've been researching and working on over these last few years? What yes. Are about? So, so, right. So, so let's give some context here. So I, as editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, I used to get asked all the time um, when I would... I. I got this job, it was 2016, and I started going on podcasts, people started inviting me to events, and they kept asking me this question. This question was, what are the qualities of a successful leader or entrepreneur? And I I, I was trying to understand why people keep asking me this one question. And I came to realize that if you listen to the questions that people ask you, what you discover is that questions are really people telling you what they think your value is to them. And if you can understand how they see you and see your value to them, then you can anticipate it and be even more valuable. 
it's a pretty powerful insight. And so I thought, well, okay, why are people asking this question? The reason they're asking me this question is because they see me as a pattern matcher. As an editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, I get to talk to everybody, and therefore I get to see the patterns across individuals, both um, you know, incredibly successful and uh and successful in their own right, but that aren't famous or anything. And um and see what it is that drives their success. And I thought, okay, well, I need an answer to this question. And I didn't have one. And so I spent years talking to people, interviewing people, researching, and came to the conclusion that the most successful people are the most adaptable. It's the thing that drives um, longevity in business. And then the question is, well, okay, well then how, what are they doing? How are they doing it? It doesn't seem to be a skill, a skill people are uh, born with. It's a skill people are learning. And so um, I didn't have an answer until the pandemic because the pandemic was when we got to see everybody go through the same change at the same time and then diverge. And that was fascinating. And that's when I came to this realization that everybody goes through change in these four phases, panic, adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back. Because even the people who moved fast during the pandemic, they did panic. They just panicked for a shorter period of time or it didn't, Mm. it wasn't as debilitating or they used that panic to drive action in a way that some people, um, uh, their panic drives inaction. Um, and that was what I ultimately wanted to understand was what are people doing? How are they doing it? And how can we all move through these phases faster so we can all get to wouldn't go back? Mm. Got it. Okay. So, yeah. So, the, so, the, so your, your book is really about, and, and what you've been researching is really about how to be adaptable, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess, and, and you've used the pandemic as one example of that, but presumably yeah. the pandemic's kind of obviously, hopefully, uh, uh, fading out a bit a, a, a unique so, experience yes right. yeah but yeah, yeah. so so what so here's the question why do we keep panicking as change hits us i mean what what is that about that's about confusing change with loss um you know and this is this is something i i came to recognize as a pattern throughout history as i studied the history of innovation which i'm fascinated by and also about how entrepreneurs and individuals navigate change. And then I found it rooted in psychology, which is loss aversion theory, which is that, um, you know, sort of decades old, long confirmed theory that, uh, that we are naturally more focused on protecting against loss than we are in gain. Mm-hmm. Um, we will, we will obsess over what we might have lost rather than what we, what we gain. I mean, I remember it myself in I mean, this is a slightly dated reference now because Bitcoin is in the, is in the toilet, but, um, but when, but when Bitcoin was on the rise, I bought it very early and I I bought it at $4,000 of Bitcoin. I sold it at $16,000 of Bitcoin. Um, and so I made some nice money, not a lot. I mean, I bought two Bitcoins, so we're not talking about riches here, but, um, but, uh, but then I just was sour as it like reached the fifties and $60, you know, 60, uh, because $60,000 mark, because I just kept thinking about all the money I could have earned mm. all the things that I, I, I perceived this as a loss, even though it was a gain, I made money and we <laughs> all experienced some version of this. We always focus on loss over gain. So when change happens, the first thing that we do is we identify the thing that we're going to 
going to lose. We say, because this is changing, I will no longer have access to this thing that I am comfortable with or familiar with or the way that I've always been doing it. And that I experience as loss. And then because we want to know the future, we extrapolate the loss. So we say, because I have lost this, I will therefore lose that because I've lost that. I will lose this other thing. And now I've lost my status or I've lost my connections or I've lost my relevancy to my consumer, whatever the case is. We focus so much on loss that we don't even begin to try to hypothesize or seek the gain that will come from the change. And that is ultimately what we need to do. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So, and I can see that plays out so often. Now, in terms of this podcast and the audience, right, many people on this, you know, who listen are already successful uh, mm-hmm. business leaders, entrepreneurs. They're probably thinking, you know, hey, um, I don't have any problem with change. Right. I love change. I already know this. Yeah. I thrive with change. So, uh, and they're probably also thinking, you know what, the people, <laughs> the people around me in my organization, my teams, my, my people, you know, they're the ones who seem, seem to be resisting my vision and, and, uh, and, and the, the, the evolution we need to make. And I have many of my clients are like that. So I'm wondering what, what would you, what would you say to those people? You know, is there something that you've learned through this, which either might be an aha for them or a different way of looking at it? Or yep. what comes to mind as I kind of paint that picture of that kind of already entrepreneurial leader? So it's a great, it's a great question. And, and it's one that comes up a lot. I do a lot of speaking to executive groups. And l- let me give you two answers to that. The first one is, I think leaders often forget that they have had a lot more time to think about and adjust to whatever new idea they have or new change is coming than the people who they are introducing it to, Um, right? It's not fair to expect that your team get on board much faster than you got on board because there was so much time before you introduced a new idea to your team that you were thinking about it, you were adapting to it. I mean, haven't we all done versions of this in, in our own work? I, I sure I sure have myself where I have an idea for something new, or maybe I say, you know what, this thing that I've been doing, I don't think that it's working as well as it should, and and, and I should change. And that idea feels terrifying, and it doesn't leave my brain. I haven't articulated it to anybody else. I haven't done anything about it. I sat with it for a while, and eventually, I got to see a way through it. I I, I adapted to it, and it then eventually got to the point where I introduced it to other people. Now, I need to give those people that same grace and time Mm. to recognize the hidden value of this that I myself didn't see at first. So let's let's not forget that we had more time with the change than the team that we are introducing it to. That's an important recognition. Uh, next, here's a problem that we have as leaders introducing new ideas to our teams, but also a mistake that we as producers of a product or service have when we are introducing something new to our consumer. It's the same problem. And here it is. We are so familiar with it. And this is similar to what I was just talking about, but but let me take it a step further. We are so familiar with it that we cannot and do not recognize that the people that we're introducing it to do not understand it nearly as well as we do. And therefore there is this gap and what we need to do is build what I like to call a bridge of familiarity. Um, that is to say that we need to recognize where people are right now 
and how what we need to give them is not the sense that we are taking away things that are comfortable and familiar to them, but rather that we are giving them a new way to do something that they are already comfortable with, right? What are their goals? What are their needs? What are their problems? They already have some kind of answer to all those things. So instead of ripping that answer away, how can we upgrade that answer? You know what people don't like? They don't like new things. You know what they like? They like better versions of old things. So we need to build a bridge of familiarity, which starts with where they are. And then we build the bridge, not from us to them, but from them to us. I'll give you a just the, the tiniest example, but one that I just love because it's so colorful and fun, which is there's a there's a snack food brand called Wild Brand, W-I-L-D-E. And they used, to, they used to make a product that taste tested very well. People loved it when they tasted it. It did not sell. Put it on shelves, nobody bought it. It was called chicken chips. It's, they look like potato chips, but it's made out of chicken. And it's called chicken chips. And people wouldn't buy it. You know why? Because that sounds disgusting. That's why, right? <laughs> that sounds disgusting. Got it. I wouldn't eat that. But the product is really good. So how can we fix this? Well, here's the thing. Nobody's ever eaten chicken chips before. It's foreign. It's weird. It's asking me to step out of my comfort zone and do something that I'm unfamiliar with for unclear value. So they rebranded. They stopped calling it chicken chips. You know what it says on the bo- on the bag now, really big? It says protein chips. That one little shift, because protein chips sounds like protein bars, sounds like protein powder, sounds like protein shakes. We know protein. There's an audience of people for protein. And where does the protein come from? Well, in this case, it comes from chicken. But that one shift unlocked growth for this brand. And now it's selling very, very well. How? Because it, they started with what is my, what is my customer familiar with? What problem am I solving that is already being solved for them, but that I can solve better? Let's start with them and build a bridge from them to me. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic example. Um, It reminds me of a phrase, which I quite like, which is that people don't actually, people don't resist change. They resist being changed. Yeah. Um, And it's quite a nice thing because you, you were speaking to that point there is that when people get to think about things and experiment and introduce, they will actually change. I'd say anybody who thinks people resist change just need to look at what happens when you give your teenage daughter her first mobile phone or whatever. I mean, people can adapt very, very quickly when they want to, when they see the value. (laughs) So. Yeah, that's right. And look, people, people, they, I mean, like, why is your team resistant to change? It's because, I mean, just think about the loss that they're going to perceive, right? They're going to see that some change inside the company is possibly going to be destabilizing to their job, to their status, um, that they used to know how to do something very well, and they may not be as valued anymore because of some shift. They don't, they're not resisting the new idea that you have. They're resisting all the effects of that idea. And so what you need to do is make sure that you understand what is important to them and what helps them feel stable. And then make sure that this new idea gives them an upgraded version of the things that are most important to them. This is, I think the, the, the problem is, 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 is not that people don't want to do better. The problem is that they don't want to lose footing. And we have to make sure that we tell them 
the story and show them the path so that they feel like what we are introducing will help them be successful too. Yeah, nice. So we started off this um, this framework that you have around adaptability and and, and transversing through change. And we talked about panic at the, the very, very start. And then I know you also referred to it this wouldn't go back, which is the the fourth step or the fourth phase in, in this process. So, do you want to just kind of zoom forward to wouldn't go back and explain what what what's that about, right? In this, mm-hmm. people have this change; it feels difficult. Uh, people might, you know, we start to we start by panicking about it. How yeah. do we get to a stage where we don't want to go back? Um, what did you find? Well, so right, the phrase "wouldn't go back" to me is that you reach this moment where you say, "I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it," and that often comes out of discovering that there was a better way to do the thing that you maybe didn't think could ever be upgraded. Um, just a, a you know a quick small business story that I love that that illustrates this is there's a woman named Lena. She has a wig shop in, in Baltimore, Maryland um, called uh, Lena's Wigs. And Lena, uh, it was a storefront, just operated like a storefront. People come in off the street, shop for wigs. Uh, and then the pandemic arrives and Lena cannot operate as a storefront anymore because there are these lockdowns. People can't come in off the street. She's trying to figure out how can what, what can she do? How can she continue to operate business? Well, the only thing she can think of is not some radical idea, but rather it was something that she had always been aware of and always thought was a bad idea for her business. And that was to move to appointment only, to only allow people to come in if they make an appointment online first. Now, why would that be bad for her business? Well, for obvious reasons, because she's thinking, I don't want to create friction. I don't want to make it harder for people to shop with me. Um, and online uh, or online appointments means that someone has to think about it in advance, schedule a time, come in later. But she has to do it. And so she does. And here is what she discovers. Two things. Number one, sales and profits rise. Number two, customers are happier. Why? Well, because here's the thing. You know who doesn't um, you know who doesn't buy wigs? People who walk in off the street. <laughs> they don't buy wigs. Uh, they browse wigs. And you know who does buy wigs? People who are buying for very personal re- reasons, generally religious or health reasons. Those people are actually incredibly happy to have a personal experience where they are not shopping, surrounded by a bunch of randos who walk in off the street. Right. Lena didn't recognize that because she thought there was one way to run her business. And as a result, she was paying somebody, a staffer, to greet the people who come in off the street and don't buy wigs at the expense of people who do buy wigs. And it wasn't until she was forced to make this change that she discovered that there was a much better way to run her business. And now her business is primarily appointment only. Um, It has a heavy digital presence that it never did before. She is selling more and she is working less. She has reached, wouldn't go back. And So so let me interrupt because it's fascinating, but what's going on in my mind is, well, hang on, Jason, but that means that the only way to improve our business is to wait for crisis situation that's going to force us to, to rethink. Right. But no, because, and that's a great, that's a great point. And that is, I think, what a lot of people think 
I mean, this is if you want to understand the dysfunction of government, then you just watch that idea that you just articulated play out in real life, right? Which is to say that nobody takes action until there is a crisis. But that's not how it has to be. We don't have to do that. We can instead be constantly asking, what would improve this? What can I do today that would improve the business? All right. What what change could I make that might seem anathema to the business, but that would actually improve the business? And where do those ideas come from? Um, I think that they come from being in incredibly close contact with our audience so that we know what their evolving needs are. Uh, I mean, just just think about what would have happened had Lena um, asked her customers not just about what they like about her her business, but what they don't like, or you know what would what would make their lives better. She might have started to hear people asking for more private experiences. She might have started to experiment with ways to give people more private experiences. Then she would have discovered that actually all of her best customers are asking for these private experiences. Now, who who's where is there is there any money coming in from people who are not asking for private experiences? No. Well, wait a second. Why do I? Why am I doing anything but the private experiences? Right. All, all, this could have. This could have been there by by constantly asking. You know, hmm. there are some questions that we can and I think should need should be asking ourselves uh, on a regular basis. Um, one of my favorite ones is this: What is this for? What is this for? Um, because when you ask that and you try to draw out function from everything that you're doing in your business, you start to realize that actually the, the function may change over time, or there may be no function at all. Mm-hmm. In my line of work, for example, uh, you know, I, 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 I've worked in traditional media for the majority of my career, national magazines and newspapers. And um, what, what I, had you asked what is content for decades ago, the answer would have been very clear. What content is for is content is for monetization. You can sell ads against the content, right? Adjacent to the content, content, or you can, uh, or, and you can sell subscriptions to the content. Right. But now that is much harder. It's much harder to do. Uh, not to say impossible, but the, 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 available advertising and subscription dollars are shrinking rapidly. And I don't think that they're ever going to reverse course. So then you must ask yourself, well, what is content for now? If it's not for monetization, is it for anything? Should we all just like close up shop? And the answer is no. To me, content is for relationships. That's what content is for. Now with that answer, I can start to think of entirely different business models. If content is for relationships, then what is the relationship for? Well, the relationship is because is for trust and people will buy products and services you from you because they trust you because of the content, which means that a media company needs to start expanding outward into products and services that will deliver upon the trust that they have built because of the content. Entrepreneur, for example, is doing that right now in all sorts of ways. I mean, we're not structured as a product business. So it's slow going, um, to be honest, but, um, but, uh, we're starting to think about what, what, what would people trust us, uh, with, uh, is it, is it consulting? Um, is it, um, tools and resources? Uh, is it, um, is it, is it help with writing and, and, uh, distribution of ideas? And those are already turning into 
very interesting and in some cases significant lines of business. And that we we don't need to wait for a crisis in order to do that. We just need to be constantly asking questions like, what is this for? And then taking the answer seriously. Hi, this is Richard. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to tell you about my book, Making Time for Strategy, which is being released in January 2023. It deals with perhaps the number one challenge I've come across in my coaching work with top executives, how to get out of the weeds of operations and make time for the high impact strategic work that will lead to breakthrough results. If you're serious about multiplying your impact, you do need to elevate your use of time. So I highly recommend that you head over to makingtimeforstrategy.com where you can find out more about the book and download some free chapters. Now, back to the conversation. Actually, that's fascinating. One of my early roles was in consulting and the company I was at had a publications business. This was Mm. a couple of decades ago, right? Publications business and and consulting. And the publications business was much more more well-known, but never really made that much money (laughs) in the scheme of things. But the brand value and recognition... And everything was massively uh, valuable to the other yeah. part of the business. Uh, and so it was like, well, we can't really close this down, even though it doesn't make any money because it's actually <laughs> generating value in other ways. So it's right. interesting. that you and, and as long as you have that answer, then you understand what to do with it. I mean, why does Red Bull produce the amount of content that it does, right? Uh, if, if you love extreme sports, then Red Bull is your place. They right. they have all these right. events for you. They have a magazine, they have a website, they have videos, it goes on and on and on. They don't make any money off of that. They make money off of energy drinks that people buy because they like that content. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, this is great. So let's just kind of zoom back out a little bit. Um, we've huh? been talking about this, this, this journey of adaptability. Um, and you talked at the start about why you... Kind of why you wrote the book, the people were asking you about what makes a great entrepreneur or business leader. Um, why did you really write the book? I mean, what I mean by that is, you know, you could have picked all sorts of things that people were asking or things that were going in conversation, but there's something sure. about this topic mm-hmm. which fascinated you, resonated with you, you spoke to your past. I don't know, something probably was there because it's a yeah. lot of effort to really do the work that you've done on, on this book. So what was it that lit a, lit a fire in you? Yeah. Oh, I love that. I mean, look, there are two answers to any question, right? There's the, there's the public answer and then there's the strategic answer. And, um, and you, 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 you heard the public answer. So I'll give you the strategic answer. Um, the strategic answer is this years and years ago, when I first became editor in chief of entrepreneur magazine, uh, I, I came to this realization about a year in, which was that this is a this is a massive uh, opportunity uh, that goes beyond just doing a good job at the magazine. Although, of course, I want to do a good job at the magazine, but this now puts me in a public role, and people have expectations of me, but also um, are interested in me in a way that they weren't before. Right before this, I was a I was a an editor at other magazines, but nobody cares about the editor unless they're the editor in chief. And, um, and so, uh, I started to explore speaking. It seemed like a really good business, but I was struggling to get any speaking gigs outside of like EO, you know, entrepreneur organization and YPO and stuff. And, uh, and I was talking to somebody in the industry and they said to me, 
you know what your problem is? I'll tell you your problem. Your problem is that the majority, the, the best gigs in speaking are like corporate gigs uh, because they're endless and they pay well. The problem for you is that as the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, these corporate event bookers are all going to think that if they bring you in to talk to your their team, that you're just going to tell their team to quit their jobs and start their own businesses. Um, and I realized that the challenge that I had was that I hadn't defined myself outside of my job title. Right? People didn't know me as anything outside of just that I had this role. And so then they were just going to make an assumption about the role. And I started to think, well, what could I be known for? What do I have to offer that is uniquely me in this space that I believe in, that I, that excites me, um, that I have a personal connection with, but that also, let's be frank, has a market value. What right. is that? Well, hang and, on. So uh, I'm, I'm, we could yeah. drill down into that strategic answer, which I, I think is great, what you're giving. But I want to pick up on what you just said, which mm-hmm. was about why it resonates, right? Yeah. So you say, I believe in this topic. It resonates with me. So I suppose that's mm-hmm. where I want to go because mm. there's a strategic answer, and, and which is very clear. As you said, you need to have a public persona right. and you're known for something. I get it. But you chose this topic of adaptability. Yeah. So what was it that was significant to you personally about that? What was what was significant about it was I I spent I spent the first maybe year or two as editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine trying to figure out what was the overlap of my experience and my audience's experience because I will be totally honest with you I well I've already given you the answer actually mm. I have a media background I don't have a business background I have never built and sold a company so what on earth am I doing telling other people how to run their businesses uh, it's it's absurd yeah. it's absurd it's gross um <laughs> But, um, and, and it's the reason why, by the way, when somebody hires me uh, to come in and talk to their executive teams, the first words out of my mouth, as soon as I get up on stage are, I'm not here to tell you how to run your business. You know how to do that. Um, and then I said, the next thing I say is, is, well, what I am here to do is tell you how incredibly smart people think, because that's what I'm good at. I'm under, I'm good at understanding how people think. Um, and, um, and that's, that's true. Like I, what I am good at is sitting down with people and understanding the decisions that they've made and the rationales of those decisions, and then figuring out how to communicate those ways, it, those those ideas in ways that are going to be like coherent and attractive and memorable to others. Mm-hmm. That's my skill set. And the uh, the way that I have built my career is by taking a lot of risks and reinventing myself and um, running into a lot of dead ends. And, um, and, you know, I mean, I've bounced around everywhere. I've worked at men's magazines. I worked in local news and I constantly force myself to build different skill sets, reinvent, rethink, be uncomfortable. And I found that entrepreneurs do exactly the same thing. And I realized uh, that's where I can relate. And, and that's where I can speak honestly. And, and somebody else can tell them the exact way to 10 X their revenue. I can't, that's not my skill set, but I can definitely tell you how people think because I've done it myself and I know that my audience does and struggles with it too. And like, that's the space where I can live. So that's where I thought I could be, I could be strategic, but also authentic. And that's the pairing you want. Yeah, I love it. It's, um, 
I talk a lot in my own business around strategy, leadership, and purpose. And, and, mm-hmm. and I love going to strategy. I'm a born strategist, right? I mean, I, yeah. I did that you know, in my career. You know, I've always been strategic. But um, but I realized that um, you have to be moved yourself before you can move others. And you have to have something which is deeply meaningful for you uh, to be strategic about. Otherwise, yeah. it all gets very analytical, Right, you're not bringing people with you, and that's why I wanted to kind of try and just start diving a little bit deeper to find that thing, which is like, yeah, yeah, this is I've done this all my life. I've always been adaptable. I've always been understanding how people think, and that's the gift that I can bring, which is what I, which is what I can hear from you. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I was to say, I I, I really I appreciate that, and I and I and I love that. That's you. You just kind of drove towards that analysis. Uh, just offer one other thought on top of what you just said, which is that I I've come to this theory that everybody in the world every human being in the world has the exact same skill and that skill is pattern matching the difference among us is what patterns we are good at matching mm-hmm. and uh right i mean some people I, I have met people who have discovered that the thing that they are best at in life is walking into a failing business and figuring out how to save it that's that's just that's they are really good at that. It's what they do. But then after that, they got to leave because they're not good at scaling that business. They're good at saving the right. business. Yeah. And um and so once they figure that out, they know exactly what their value is. I have figured out that for me um d- like the pattern that I am really good at is how people think through problems. Mm. I just I'm, I'm, I understand it. I talk to people about it and I see what they've done and I can overlay it with what I've learned from other people. And I, I thought once I realized that about myself, I thought, well, that's where I can live. That's the space that, that where I can provide the most value. Yeah. I love it. Um, and that brings me on perhaps to an, another question as, as we start to think about winding up here, but I, I love this question, which is um, about, you know, you talked about pattern matching um, and you do that. It made me think about, I've been getting, tuning up my own sense of mission in the world and what actually I do. It's mm. a question that we're always thinking about. How is that important to describe what I do? I realized that um, the, what I'm about and what Exportant is about is helping entrepreneurial leaders create and seize breakthrough opportunities that are changing the world. Mm. And what I mean by that is it's when you need an exponential kind of thinking, right? You can't stay with the incremental because these are breakthrough opportunities that are beyond the, the realms of, of our of our current reality, I suppose yeah. you would say. So I want to ask you, um, you've done this, you know, you've done this deep work of coming up with the book. Um, you've got your day job. Uh, you've got your speaking gigs, you've got everything else. What are your breakthrough opportunities that are just there this year? What's coming to mind as I say that? You might not have thought about it. I'm putting you on the spot. But what comes to mind when I talk about what would those be breakthrough game-changing opportunities for you, Jason? Uh, coming or that have or that have coming already up, had. yeah. Well, coming what, up. what do you think's in your field of vision? It's a great question. Well, okay. There are there are a couple there are a couple things. Um, number one, I okay. So one of the things that I do in addition to what we've already described or discussed is is podcasting. Um, I have these. Uh, I have these shows that I've been hosting for by myself for a while. Um, one I do with Entrepreneur, one I've been doing by myself. It's a complicated show, and I've really struggled to scale it. I, I, people who listen to it love it. They, I have people who have been listening to this thing for years and years, but I just can't seem to scale it. it like it's plateaued, and it's 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 killing me. And um, I 
I have made the decision this year to um, put that on hiatus and shift my energy towards another show that I'm doing with a friend who has built a team. Uh, that friend is Nicole Lappin. She is a uh, she's a, a money ex best selling money expert. We have this new show. It's called Help Wanted, and it's it's about helping people. Like it's, it's so new that I don't have the like one liner. But yeah. but what, what we you know what we want to do is we want to, we want to help people achieve the things that they want to achieve, and um, and we're going to do that by uh, a lot of times by kind of digging into real world examples. So um, so you know if we talk about how to build connections, I'm going to go through my inbox and uh, and talk about uh, and sort of share. Uh, good and terrible emails that I got. Uh, if we talk about how to set boundaries, we're going to um, bring one of her employees on on um, Mike and talk about how uh, we're all texting at 11 p.m. and uh, how do we set boundaries uh, here? And uh, anyway, it's been it's been a lot of fun. But I'll tell you, like one of the breakthroughs that I really want from this is what does it look like when I partner with others? Because I've been doing things by myself too long, and I want to see what it's like when I. <clears throat> take a step back, don't do everything myself, um, allow others to do a lot of these things and um, and become part of something. I, obviously, I do that with Entrepreneur Magazine, but that's different. It's an established company. This is, this is something that's fresh, new, mine, but that it's now going to be others too. I, I think and, and expect that that's going to be a real revelatory experience for me and that uh, I'm going to discover that a lot of the growth that I was missing in my solo shows came because there was just never enough energy available to figure out what was required to grow this and that, and that having the right team is going to, is going to help. Um, so that it's like team building is, is, is a big breakthrough for me. And, um, and then, uh, you know, another one is, is, uh, is, is thinking about, you know, I, I, I have had years of people asking me, what's the plan? You know, I, here I am, I, I'm, I'm editor in chief of this magazine, which I've, I've been doing since 2016. I've got the book, I've got the podcast, I've got speaking of a bunch of other things. I do some startup advising. What's the plan? And I don't have a great answer to that. Um, what's the plan? The plan is to keep building, but you know, like to what end? Um, and, um, and I, I've I've been having, and it's so fresh that I don't have any details for you. But I've been having some interesting conversations with people, not about like leaving entrepreneur right now, but just about like how to think about myself and how to understand like where am I going and what am I doing. And mm -hmm. I, I sat down with a, a CEO of a, a very large, well-known company recently, and we just got talking very personally. And um, and he was pushing me to think about like what I am in different ways that I was I just found really energizing. Um, and so I think part of this year, the breakthrough for me will be to have a better answer to what the plan is. Mm, yeah, that's great. So I'm going to let you off the hook for my next question, which is how do you <laughs> want to change the world? Right. Which is the <laughs> part of that, that phrase, yeah. but I, I want to honor you and respect you for like no, calling yourself on that and saying, you know what, I need to have this plan. And for me, it's not, it might not be a plan. The way I like to describe it is a 25 year vision. Mm. What's great about that is you only have to achieve 1% every quarter. So take the pressure off. <laughs> right. That's a great, but that's like, a great way to think about it. Yeah. But what is the 1%, right? That's going to move mm -hmm. you towards that thing, which is that exponential goal that feels, the way I like to say, is it's got to put a stupid grin on your face because you're so embarrassed to talk about it, <laughs> but it lights you up, right? Yeah. And that's that's where some of the magic lies. Um, 
Well, hey, Jason, it's been a really fun conversation. Um, before we leave, kind of just tell people where they can find you and just say, like, just remind us what the book's called and where they can, you know, best find out about that. Yeah. So, you know, thanks. This has been great. I, you know, I, I always enjoyed chatting with you. Um, so the book is called Build for Tomorrow, and you can find it on Amazon or wherever you get books. Uh, there, There is a UK edition um, as well. So um, it, I know it's out there. People have told me that they've seen it in bookstores in London, which is very cool. Uh, but, you know, uh, wherever you get books, it's also available on audiobook. I read it myself uh, or ebook. And uh, and then if you want to reach me, you can do so at jasonpfeiffer.com. That's my email or that's my website address, but you can find my email and my social media handles and my newsletter, um, which is which is about adaptability as well, uh, uh, all there. So anyway, jasonpfeiffer.com. And I would love to hear from you. Well, Jason, hey, it's been fun. I've, I really um, love your insights uh, about about the the concept of adaptability but also you know as we got closer into your you know yourself and your own journey uh there towards the end i actually think you know your comment about partnerships and 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 joint ventures and 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 that kind of thing is, is yeah. also really well taken i think it's what i'm trying to learn as well i don't, I don't mm. think i've mastered that i try and do a lot myself and yeah. realize that it's not actually always the best way of doing it right so that's also a great reminder for me uh, so, Jason, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I wish you all the best for the book and let's stay in touch. Oh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Now, let's talk about you. When you're in top leadership, when you're in the biggest role of your career, who supports you at a deep level as you lead others? Who helps you multiply your impact and get to the next level? If you're ready to learn more about our content, our coaching, and our community, then visit us at xquadrant.com.